0: which of course is English for Achtung Achtung because as you will notice, I'm not joined by Al tonight who has been unfortunately detained, but I'm here with Katja who is of course is German, and if anyone's going to say Achtung Achtung it should be you, Katja.
1: Do I have to? Yes. <sighs> Achtung Achtung. Oh, wasn't that brilliant? <laughs> You just did that so well. <laughs> you really, really I'm did. so
0: willingly. So, yeah, so um, um, welcome, everyone. Good evening. And um, to We Have Ways live stream live from the brilliant... National Army Museum. And thank you to Nicola and Dawn. We're going to get Nicola and Dawn down later, who've stayed up, especially um, keeping the place open. I'm a big fan of this museum. I'm not going to lie. I I think it's absolutely terrific. And uh, not least because, of course, they've allowed me to put on a Brothers in Arms exhibition, more of which soon, because we're going to go and have a little look about that. That's just finished at 5 p.m. this afternoon. Uh, And uh, we're also joined today for the first time ever, a live. It's the chosen nine. It's so exciting. So welcome all. Good evening. Um, it's lovely to chat to you earlier. Of course, it's been. We have ways. We've all been uh, um, stoking ourselves up with with pils and lager. Pils and lager. So, what is the difference between pils and lager?
1: <laughs> They're really much of a muchness. So, a pilsener is a type of lager. So there are some lagers who aren't, which aren't pilseners, but all pilseners are lagers.
0: Okay, fine. So basically, a yeah, Pilsen <laughs> that's, that's Lager. That doesn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah <laughs> that's fine. But anyway, so we've been having and Lager and we've been having wine and um, you're all most welcome. Thank you very much for coming, Chosen Nine. Um, now, anyway, we are talking about the fact that, you know, I'm just not published in Germany. I was going to be, Anthony Beaver's published in Germany. You know, why, why aren't I published in Germany? And I was sort of sounding really like a sort of petulant child about, about this. And Margaret, who, Margaret Holton, who does the right, she said, yeah, but... Germans don't really do Second World War books unless they're kind of sort, of sort of geeky books about tanks or they do kind of really kind of heavyweight stuff. And I went, yeah, but, you know, Anthony Beaver's published in Germany. And, and she said, yeah, well, the, the problem is that they've sort of now got one. You know, they don't need anyone else because they've got Anthony Beaver. And I said, well, what about Max Hastings? She said, well, they don't publish him. Mm. I said, what about Alex Kernshaw Don't publish him. You know, what I, about I've Rick Atkinson? i
1: struggled with my book, to be honest. It's the same thing. It's right in between of being... Like, it's not an 800-page tome by professor something. Yes, so with not, four billion yeah, footnotes. Exactly, notes. and equally, it isn't a picture book of, um, I don't know, helmets and uniforms of the, <laughs> of the 19th century, so, you know, because it falls in between right. those two things. There, there just isn't... Um, I think there'd be a market for it. There's just not the willingness to publish it. There's not the willingness. To, this is my point. Okay, so on TV, on the other hand, there's
0: absolutely loads of it. I mean... I can't remember what they call Nazi megastructures over
1: there, but trust <laughs> me, it's on screen. Nazi in Germany. Mega <laughs> I think it's, I, 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 what's it called? Nazi megastructure. <laughs> I don't know if it's called but I just translated. No, so <laughs> well, I think so that brilliant. could work. <laughs> That's really funny.
0: Well, anyway, whatever it's called over there, it's on. And um, I've
1: done. I mean, I've done a number of series for ZDF. Mm. ZDF's big, they big, love big, it, big yeah. channel, right? Yeah, it's kind of like the BBC Two. Of germany i guess well you can't for love nor money
0: get a program on the second World war on bbc 2 these days but you can on german mm. telly so maybe the maybe the revolution's about to happen
1: maybe we can push it <laughs> exactly
0: now the other thing that's very exciting is because we're standing we're, we're standing in front of a universal carrier and and actually we've we've just done a rather um daring we have ways purchase this week we have bought not a universal carrier but a lloyd carrier and uh, well, we've actually bought one and a half. So there are three for sale, and one of, one of um, Tobin's mates, Tobin as in our kind of hardware guru and uh, Cromwell um, restorer, is called Ben. He's called Ben Hawkins, but his, um, his email is Ben Carrier, which I think is pretty smart, I've got to say. <laughs> uh, anyway, so I'm gonna call him Ben Carrier from now on. But anyway, Ben Carrier has bought three Lloyd Carriers, which are in a yard somewhere, well, no, covered in a barn somewhere near Chichester in Sussex. And one isn't really good, Nick. One is complete needs restoration, and the other one is complete bits. So we have bought the second one,
1: <laughs>
0: which is in complete bits, but is complete. And so um, we've got a guy called Marcus Bailey, who is a guy I know who lives just down the road from me. Um, who is still in his 20s and was sort of stripping down engines before he could actually ride a bike. Um, And he's permanently covered in oil. He's one of those sort of just people who just knows how to deal with engines and gaskets and big ends and what have you. And um, anyway, so he's going to be overall in charge of restoring it. But we're obviously going to be following the progress of its restoration on We Have Ways. The highs, the lows, the hiccups, the triumphs. And then at the end of it, we're all going to be able to go for a spin in it, which is going to be great. And we're already arguing about what colours it's going to be and what what decals. Because obviously, uh, as we were discussing earlier on, Al is going to want to have it in airborne colours. Obviously, I'm going to want to have it in Sherwood Rangers colours. So neither of us are going to get that one. Then Akak, who's in the audience tonight, is saying, "Well, you know, I think you know, King's Own Scottish Borderers, you know, 52nd Lowland Division."
1: Yeah, I'm sort of, you know, I'm
0: with that. I mean, I'd be edging towards 43rd Wessex Division or, or Tyne Tees, but, but you know, it's up for grabs, ACAC. That's the bottom line. That's it's cool. up for grabs. But but whatever, it's going to look incredibly strong at the end of it, and we're all going to be able to beetle around in it. It's going to be huge fun. Anyway, um, the main reason for being here in the brilliant National Army Museum, Nicola, <laughs> is um, is because today we've just completed the Brothers in Arms exhibition, which I... I have mentioned before on, on the podcast and on live streams and, and it's finally come together and, and a whole host of people have been involved with it. brilliant drinker dean who've designed it there's um andrew whitworth from the d-day museum who's helped um help me kind of sort of keep sort of rein me in a little bit um, there's a brilliant jane holmes who's who's sort of the person in-house in at the National Army Museum who kind of oversees all the kind of individual exhibitions and again has been kind of sort of reining me in quite a lot but, but the overall effect has been absolutely fantastic and of course there's Nicola and Dawn who kind of do all the marketing and PR and we've got an amazing week this week because actually on Saturday well tomorrow arriving tomorrow is my friend Jim Clark in his Sherwood Rangers Colors Sherman tank which is very exciting Um, So that's actually a Sherman tank coming to Chelsea, which I'm quite looking forward to seeing. But on Saturday, we've got a big open day. We've got David Willey coming up from from Bovington. As you know, David likes to talk and likes to chat about tanks. So if anyone wants to chat about tanks with David, he's going to be here on Saturday. The exhibition itself opens on Thursday, the 9th of December. So this Thursday, um, the day after the start of the Ashes. Um, and uh, but tonight we've got this exclusive preview because you are the first people who will be seeing it, other than those who've actually been involved with it. Come on in, follow me. Um, we've got um, what we decided to do was although Obviously, there's there's lots and lots of people that are involved in the um, in the Sherwood Rangers. Obviously, as in, in the book, I kind of focus on a, on, a, on a cast of people that you can follow and empathise with. Then we had to kind of sort of grade that down again and, and just pick out a handful. We chose we chose eight. I was told I was only allowed six. And I said, no, we just, we've got to have eight. We've really, really got to have eight because so I wanted that representation. I didn't want all the officers. Uh, but there's some people that, who just sort of really, really stood out. So we also then have to kind of work out what is it we're trying to do here? You know, the, the takeaways for me were the humanity, the humanity of the people. I mean, I, I just think I just cannot get over, it, you know, Christmas, nineteen forty-four. The chocolate and sweets for the kids of Shinan Stanley christophson noticing the the the, the snowdrop just outside Cleve, and just a sort of general good humour and and love of the ridiculous that they all had. And, you know, they really they really were a kind of you know brothers in arms. It, you know, it, it's a cliche, but the, cliches are cliches because they are true and it's certainly case for the case with the Jovem. Then I was really, really struck, I suppose, when I was doing the book, just of the, about the awesome responsibility on the shoulders of the commanders, particularly the troop commanders, squadron commanders, and obviously the people at the top of the regiment. Just, just they're so young and they've got so much as expected of them on, on so many different levels. So that was the other thing I really wanted to get across. Then I also really wanted to get across just just what it was like being in a tank and, and what it was like being the crew. And then also just the absolutely horrific casualties. I mean 142% casualty. So that's what we're trying to convey in here. So we've got we've got our eight guides. So so it's worth just sort of mentioning them. So obviously Stanny Christopherson, you know, you need a little bit of background about the Sherwood Rain Rangers Generally, because you know I've been banging on about it obviously for ages, ever since I first sort of conceived the book, and you 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 guys have all listened to me and the progress as I've I've been developing this book. But you know, you need to know that they kind of went off to war in 1939 or early 1940 on horseback, um, that they finished the kind of single unit with more battle honours than any other. I mean, that's quite an achievement. I mean, obviously, there's regiments with more battle honours, than like Garhams, for example, but then there's got lots and lots of battalions, but the Sherwood Rangers are just one unit. So as a single unit, no one's got more battle honours than them, and I think it's 30 and 18 between D-Day and V-Day. So it's a heck of a lot. And the reason they've got all these battle honours is because they were fighting all the time, and that's because they're in an independent arm of the So you've got... Stanley uh, Christopherson, obviously, because, you know, I edited his diaries. His son, David, is one of my greatest mates. And he's just a title legend. I mean, he's just an absolutely remarkable guy. Then you've got George Drew, title legend. I mean, you know, he he was a jockey before the war, a real countryman, and was in the kind of, you know, when they were TA, when they were Yeomanry before the war, they're part-time soldiers. String was kind of absolutely at the heart of that. And he's the guy that knocks out five, you know, his tank knock out five tank, German tanks on the 26th of June, 1944, when they're trying to get the Rory Ridge as part of Operation Marlock. Um, and his, his nephew Martin, and his, his sister's still alive, lives in, in Malta, um, Harry Heenan's sister, and his, his, um, Harry Heenan's nephew Martin lives in, in London. And I was really, really touched that they, they let me look at Harry's letters. And again, they're, they're so profoundly moving because, um, spoiler alert, he, he doesn't make it through. He gets killed on the 25th of September, uh, exactly a month after his 21st birthday. And letters, you can see he's this kind of sort of boy man. You know, he's still writing to his parents pretty much every day. You know, I, I've got a 20-year-old son, so I'm kind of very conscious that he's of a similar sort of age and that my son is also, you know, he's, he's branching out. He's becoming more independent. He's his own man, but he still loves home. And, you know, he still kind of brings us every other day. And, you know, he hasn't quite completely left, let go of his kind of youthfulness. And that's what you get in those letters. And suddenly someone, you know, you're, you're reading those words, the flesh is coming back onto the bones of someone who's long dead. And that that's a really, really profoundly, moving experience then Ernie Leppard I just love Ernie he's a, he's a Cockney he's um, uh, well he's not actually a Cockney he's a South Londoner he's from Clapham and um, his dad was a plasterer and after the war he became a plasterer and he's just a he's just a sassy lovely bloke <laughs> Sam Perry, we all know about Sam. You know, we were lucky enough to see him at, at uh, Warfest Ainz. Um, he was a great mate of mine. And um, his daughter, Kat, actually um, gave me his tie, his red tie. which was a big thing. So I should be wearing that at the launch on, on uh, Wednesday evening. Um, Semkin, I'm just completely in awe of, awe of John, John Semkin. You know, 23-year-old, years old, commander of A squadron. And, 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 you know, he's He's very, very bright. And he's very competent and, and he's got that authority, even though he looks about 11 in that picture. And I was lucky enough to, to interview him in 2012 with David Christopherson, And it was so, it was such a moving and memorable interview, one of the most uh, memorable that I've ever done, I think, um, of, of the sort of 300 plus Second World War veterans. He was obviously completely devastated by his experience still after all these years. Uh, and he was incredibly candid and incredibly frank. And, and it was clear that you know his, his leadership just saved a lot of lives, but I was really struck by the incredible responsibility on his shoulders and how he dealt with it. And how would you deal with that at 23? I mean, God, I was useless at 23. I mean, well, I'm pretty useless now, but I was really <laughs> totally feckless at 23. I mean, I just cannot imagine doing what he did. Then, then Skinner, I mean, there, there are no words that can pay tribute to him and what he did. And again, his humanity that, you know, he, he's, he's what we call pastoral care today. Um, he is obviously the, the, the chaplain. Most people were Christian, but he's so much more than that. You know, he is a man who is there to give, to talk to. Um, to be a shoulder to cry on but but also perhaps more importantly he's the person who takes responsibility of all the dead he doesn't want the crew to see any of the dead he personally oversees a barrel of every single one uh um, people like bill bartle you know he just just gone just disappeared and it really troubles him and stanley Christopher has to rein him in and go no you, you no you're not i'm not going to let you go up the front and find out what's happened to bill bartle and then there's Bill Wharton, who is just, you know, I just, I, in a way, I kind of feel more um, affinity to him, I think, than just about anyone else. Because his son, um, Michael, who's coming over this week for the exhibition, which I've never met, but I've talked to extensively, sent me um, all his father's wartime letters, transcripts of all his wartime, um, wartime letters. And here's the first one here. and, and um, They're all typed up, but, but here you can see the writing of them. And this is written on the 1st of June. You know, 1944, when D-Day hasn't happened. So, when that ink is is put onto that piece of paper, D-Day hasn't happened. It's about to happen, and he talks about but a bit of cloud coming over and the wind in the trees above his tent, and you know, wondering how she is, and she, his wife's pregnant with their first child, and he's worried about that, and it's just, ah, oh my God, you know, the, you're just sort of so in the moment, and that's such a privilege to kind of it's also a privilege to be able to touch this letter this letter that was written in a camp you know near the solent just before they were going on on, onto their landing craft what an amazing thing and there's the nine of hearts that stanley found in his camp because they were a squadron so they weren't in the first wave so they're in a different camp and he found that on the ground he didn't like people wishing him good luck he, he sort of thought that was tempting fate, but he wasn't above kind of um, superstitions. And he found the nine of hearts and he thought, right, I'm gonna keep that. this is gonna be my, this is gonna be my four leaf clover. And he put it in his breast pocket of his battle dress and he kept it there for the entire war. And there it is, that's it. That is the nine of hearts that he found on that camp in C3 or B2 or whatever the ones I can't remember which one it was. But you know, it, so it's, it's amazing to see these things. So then we move on to life in a tank, but also I wanted people to to touch things. So we've got a, we've got a pixie suit in, in a glass cabinet there, but we've also got one you can touch. You know, you can undo the zip, you can put it up, you can feel the, the, the thin weave surge on the, on the collar and hood. You can see where they put all the pens and whatever they had, pockets galore on this. And it's got this little very fine poplin cop, cotton liner in it. Um, underneath to stop the sort of water going down your arm. Um, and this, this pattern here, this is the uh, waterproofing stuff. It's, yeah. It sort of stains it. And it feels quite, if you feel there, it feels quite, I mean, have a little fumble, but it, it feels quite scrunchy. But these are, these are good, they're, they're, they're super warm. Yeah. And come sort of, you know, October when they were all issued, they're wearing them all the time. You, you see them all the time. So then we've got a, a, a kind of a montage here of the show rangers. And what I wanted to do was sort of show that although we picked on eight people, actually it is a regiment of, of hundreds, uh, as a whole host of different people. So I want to give this flavour of of different people. So you've got this whole range, and you can see sort of you know the winter, the pixie suits here they are, and the pixie suits here. You can see them crossing the Rhine. Um, you can see Operation Pepper Pot here, um, and then you get to the third section which is you know the experience of battle what's it, what's it like being in, in, in battle and again we wanted to come on come on in, come, on in, come in. we really wanted to kind of want people to, to touch this you know feel what it's like to, to touch a battle dress uh, and although this is a this is a 1945 battle dress I've done it up as John Sempkins you know the yellow for Royal Armour Corps they had yellow pips rather than khaki pips major his medals so we did a few, we, we, we put in a few infographics. So the point I really wanted to make is, is this was a regiment that went to war on horseback. And this is what the regiment would look like. It's a lot of horses is it? 300 horses going on trains down to Marseille and going on a boat to Palestine. And then this is what you've got by 1944. And, of course, it's totally transformed. You know, the, the, there are, the, the only continuity is, is a handful of the personnel. You know, who go all the way through. There's actually quite a lot in the regiment who land on D Day who were there in 1939 on horseback. And, you know, you look at, you look at photographs of them, and, and it's just extraordinary, really. I mean, they're, they're, they just look like so they're from a like kind of a different, a different planet, frankly. And there, ladies and gentlemen, is the shell, <laughs> the 75 millimeter, normally sitting by my desk, now protected by a glass cage, <laughs> carefully brought up on the train from Salisbury to Waterloo (laughs) in my U.S. Army canvas hold all. And you can see on one hand, I I think this is the other thing that, you know, Al often talks about this idea that we're kind of, you know, we're six months behind where we need to be in terms of technology. Um, And I think when you look at that, that that very obviously looks like a radio, even to someone who's, you know, born in the 21st century. You know, I think most people will recognise that that is a radio. On one level, it's incredibly sophisticated. On, on another level, it's incredibly unsophisticated. And, 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 you know, I'm constantly sort of reminded that, that these are real people like you and I. They have the same thoughts and feelings and emotions. And yet they're dealing in, a, in an age where technology has taken this huge leap forward. But it is light years away compared to most of the technology that we use today. You know, there's no GPS, there's no mobile phones, there's no WhatsApp, there's no, you know, you know, video games, there's no COD. Um, you know, it's, it's just a completely different world, and yet, yet it, there is enough, isn't there? I think from the 1940s to make it still seem kind of within touching distance, and it just is because the people are just still alive. So we've got here, we've got bits of the, of the war diary. We've got this amazing sheet here. This is from Bovington. I found in Bovington, and I realised as soon as I read it that this was talking about. Oh, well, they then talk about, I think he talks about, did he talk about Neville Fern in here? But anyway, this is absolutely George Drink and Neville Fern. Yeah, they're Sergeant Drink, he does talk about something. But, but what he's done. And then I thought, it's interesting, another infographic just to do a day in the life. So you can see the kind of relentlessness of it when you're in action of just how hard it is in 24 hours and what you were expected to do. I mean, you know, six days of this, and you're absolutely spent. So it's fun doing these sort of infographics and, and and getting these getting them put together, because these infographics work, don't they? They they just lay it out on a plate exactly, so much clearer than kind of lots of words sometimes. Um, and then we've got these maps. These are these are some of Stanley's maps. It's amazing, isn't it, to be able to see the actual the, the actual maps he had, and on some of them he's got uh, yeah, he's got little pencil markings here. I mean, isn't that amazing? You know, which he would have been in his turret or wherever and he's got marks there this is boundary lines the route they're taking and stuff like that it's absolutely incredible and this is up on the kind of the big swan up through 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 northern france again another letter from stanley here so this is to myrtle Myrtle Kellett is the widow of Flash Kellett, who had been the command of the Sherwood Rangers when they um, become mechanised in 1941, and he eventually gets killed in the early part of 1943, gets promoted up to brigade. Um, and Myrtle was uh, was rather lovely, and um, Stanley developed a bit of a crush on that. I'm not going to lie. Um, and then we get on to casualties. When we get on to casualties, I just want to show you this, because this is, this is Stan's um, service dress. We're moving, isn't it, to see it? You know, we still think of that of that old man who came and talked to us and seduced us all at Warfest back in September. And there's this figure. He's got his his SAS wings on on the side there and his brief foray into the in the SAS. And there's my binos. You know, because everyone needs binos. This was this this map here was done for a. a this was actually painted by Stuart Hills, is one of the, um, one of the guys who got through unscathed, amazingly. But again, it's a, it's a, I think it's a, it's a brilliant little map, isn't it? And then we go to the casualties. And the casualties is what I really, really wanted to hit home. Unfortunately, but I, this, I took these photos of this letter, and literally, just, and I, I took these up at Carlton Barracks, up in Nottingham. We just couldn't find it. I, I don't know what happened to it, but this is, this is when Dennis Elmore dies on the 19th of April. And Dennis is Stuart's great friend. and Stuart's parents, of, uh, they're, they're prisoners of the Japanese, he hasn't seen his father since 1937, hasn't seen his mother since 1939, I don't think. And he doesn't really know what's happened to them. And his friends are consequently that much more important to him. And Dennis was brilliant. He was um, an amazing sportsman. He was a scholar. He was absolutely Stuart's best friend. And and this bit here, I remember reading this and just, you know, the hairs on the back of my neck standing up. And he says, I loved him better than anyone else in the world, so I know just how you feel. And the bottom has been knocked out of my world. I mean, goodness, that's raw grief for you, isn't it? Um, And just incredible to read the letter. I really was just in pieces doing that. And actually when I was writing the book, right at the end, I knew I had this, this big scene coming. I didn't know how to do it to sort of just convey the kind of enormity of the loss that, that Stuart Hills felt. And I, I found myself getting really, really upset writing it. I really did. Uh, it's about the most upset I've been while writing the book was writing that and, and just reading that. And it's just so raw and real, isn't it? And you realize that these are, these are not just sort of black and white figures from the past. These are real people who kind of loved, lived and breathed. And that's what we're trying to sort of get across really, I suppose, you know, in all, all this. And here's another letter from Bill Wharton. These are the telegrams that his, that his, um, that his wife received. And here's what Sam Perry was had in his breast pocket when he was wounded the second time um, during Black Hawk, and you can still see the shrapnel marks. And the shrapnel went through that this this sort of um, leather wallet with pictures of his new wife in, and nestled against the edge of his heart. Mm. You can't imagine it, can you? Uh, it's just amazing. That's the telegram she got. I mean, it's quite something, really. So, and then Padre Skinner, this is a, a copy of, of, his, of his casualty book he kept with the little maps of where he buried everyone. Um, and uh, this is from the Berju battle. Um, there you are, Lieutenant Galvin. You know, we saw him in the tank uh, at the beginning of the, of, of the exhibition, and there he is. Unidentified burnt remains broken and scattered on tank, in tank, completely burned up, brewed up, yeah. No one known to have escaped, no personal effects. Yet, weirdly, years years later, they found a cat badge because what happened was they bulldozed the tank off the road, which is why there's now the gap on the side of the road. And when they bulldozed it over, it rolled over, and the cat badge fell out. And when they finally cleared away the tank, God knows whatever it was in the early 1980s or whatever it was, they found the cat bench, and that was one of those crew. Amazing. And here's his diary, which I'm very glad he transcribed. I have to say, because it's very, very difficult. <laughs> you were complaining about my writing earlier, on Tony. <laughs> I mean, you know, have a go at that. I mean, jeepers. And this is a letter from George George String. It's absolutely incredible. He goes, pleased to say, I'm going on fairly well. I've got my hand growing in my stomach now. They've put a flap out and sewn my hand in it, and I haven't lost it all. I have two fingers left that work and one that doesn't. The rest that's shot away, they're trying to make like a web. So I may be able to grip a little with it still. It's finished my army life. Um, and then we've got a few sort of artefacts from the end of the war, these, these texts remain. one was presented to Skinner, one was presented to Stanley, we've managed to bring those together for the first time since the end of the war, which is a lovely thing to do, and this is rather remarkable, this is the message that was handed over to Stanley Christopherson on the evening of the 4th of May. And you see the, the last bit. So this is an old message book. And originally, initially, when Stanley received it, he was a bit annoyed about it because he thought it was not very clear. But the reason he'd done it was because he'd written it down in such a, he was such a kind of state of blue funk at the excitement <clears throat> that he just wrote it at the bottom of this already used page. And it says, um, no advance from present, no further um, harassing fire, Um, No practical move without further orders. BBC News confirmed German army in front surrenders at 0800. Details of uh, procedure will follow. Wow. And there's the quote that Sani says. It meant the war in Europe was over. My first reaction was a feeling of profound relief, followed by indescribable exhilaration and finally a sorrowful longing for those special friends no longer with us with whom I wish to share this moment. Written on the 5th of May. Quite a thing. And then we kind of thought, well, you know, we've got these eight people. We want to know what happened to them all. Um, so we, one of them didn't make it, so his position is back. Harry Heenan, he was killed. Um, and here you've got, got the others. Um, and there you've got a picture of stand taken by Stuart Bertie at, at Warfest. And amazing to think that that was taken on the 19th of September and he passed away on the 6th of October. You know, how lucky were we? And it means that that link to those who were, who were actually in the, actually lived in the, in the regiment and served and fought with the regiment, oh, you yeah, know, they're just slipping away. There's, there's like three left now. You know, it's, it's, it's moving. It really is. It's profoundly moving, I think. And here they are. Just so These are the officers that survived. So there's Stanley. There's Jack Coleman. Um, there's um, Dick Coleman. Not many left. But that's it. So um, I hope you like it. Thank you to everyone. Thank you for everyone for watching. And thank you to the National Army Museum, most of all. <laughs>